Sal's uh, defense, in Sal's defense, he didn't get hard, idiot. but there was some tingling going on on the doctor's <laughs> right. face. Right. And that's tingling what was happening with that guy. <laughs> I went to a doctor. Uh, I got to go checked. anyway. All right, Ralphie, there's your answer. Uh, Sal says nothing uh, untoward happened. It's just a matter of that he hadn't been there in a year and... And uh, the yes, exactly. who wouldn't get rid of him after they hadn't been there? <laughs> when is the when is the video of the October uh, the, the the penis contest? I'm, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure pretty be soon because uh, the guys usually have a day or two turnaround. So uh, it be, was. Yeah, it was there so, has to be was, great demand for that. Yeah, there it is was great so demand. Great the, the last guy, Robin, sort of liked him, and you can hear her going from liking her, like when she's giggling with Jake Gyllenhaal, like she's giggling, and then by the end she's disgusted with him when he like shits out his, <laughs> when he shit out his balls. balls. Yeah. All right, Ralphie boy, uh, I'll talk to you later. Uh, that's Thank Ralph. You. Everyone loves Ralph. Uh, Robin, we'll take a quick break. <laughs> I feel free. I happen to know that Billy Joel is a big Cream fan. He always uh, enjoyed them. One of his influences. Um, song written by Jack Bruce. Great song. Do I have that right, Billy? I think Billy's ready to go. Billy, you there? Here he is, the legend himself. And he is a legend. Hey. Look at you. Hey, Billy. I was, uh... Hi. I, you're a Cream fan, right? I love Cream. I love Cream. I feel free. It was a great band. Clapton's, uh, you know, Clapton's like one of my heroes, but he got weird with the pandemic and started going. Did you did you read about him? He was like one of the guys who was anti-vax. Yeah, I, it was a total shock to me. I, I didn't know what his politics were, but um, it's not pleasant. No, you look great. I, you know, I spent last night, I was telling Robin early this morning, I spent last night just listening to your catalog. What a fucking amazing accomplishment these songs and i and i made the point you know you talk about the greatest songwriters that ever lived which you you know i have to put you in that category wow. a lot of guys who write write with a writing partner or write with a whole band you did it all on your own and and i wonder if that isn't part of the satisfaction as you look back on your life okay mick jagger great songwriter but he needed keith richards you know elton had bernie uh, you had to do the whole thing yourself. And, and when you look back on that, it, to me, that's a special accomplishment. It's almost like John McEnroe was the greatest tennis player at one point in the world. But it was all just him. He wasn't on a football team. He wasn't to be a great songwriter and to have that all come out of your head. Isn't there some satisfaction in being the guy who wrote the whole thing? Well, to, I have to give credit where credit is due. A lot of the stuff that's on the recordings that everybody hears was run by my band before I recorded them. So I would bring stuff in, ideas, and if the band didn't like it, I would throw it out or I would change it or I would rearrange it. Um, I mean, honestly, uh, the drummer on, the, on those albums, Liberty DeVito, had a lot to do with... Uh, what songs got picked or not, uh, hmm. or how songs were played. Like, I came in with Only the Good Die Young. It was originally a reggae. Right. And he hated reggae, and he threw his sticks at me. So I hate reggae. I don't want to play like a reggae. So we had to figure out another way to do it, and that's why you hear what you hear. But And the guitar player put his two cents in. Doug Stegmar, the bass player, he put his two cents in. And I, the band had to like it. Before it was uh, arranged and recorded, you know there so, was yes. a crucial, yeah. But but there was a crucial move too. I was thinking about your career, and now I'm all over the place. But there's so much I want to say to you, and I haven't seen you in so long. I haven't seen you in two I years. I, I know, know. you've been time. you've been in in your cave. <laughs> well, I was I was telling everybody earlier. I said, you know, one of the great pleasures of my life is knowing Billy Joel. He's a wonderful dinner guest. He comes in. 
He's ready to eat at five o'clock and he's ready to leave by seven. <laughs> and uh, we, we had some great dinners. You, you're on the same page as me. Let's go. Let's go. The, the, a couple hours. That's it. It's enough. How much, I know how much when it's you take? like to be, yeah, like to be fish at somebody's house and start yeah. riding from the head. Yeah. <laughs> but you're we am way more social than I am. I mean, uh, you, you know, you're going out and doing concerts now. I'm still hiding in my house. I'm not seeing anybody. I'm scared. I hear you. I, I'm, I'm a home buddy myself. I, I like I being know. home. When, uh, first of all, I got to mention your appearance. I mean, this is a remarkable weight loss. How many pounds have you lost? This is a, it's, you look like a different guy. Uh, I lost like 50 pounds. No wow. kidding. How'd yeah. you do that? Uh, pain and aggravation. No, uh, I on. had, no, seriously. I had back surgery early this year and the pain afterwards was so bad. I lost my appetite. It was wow. back, lower back pain. And they told me it may take a year for you to start to feel normal again. So losing the appetite, I embraced that. I said, okay, I won't eat as much. And I ate less and less and less and less. And then there was just life aggravation. And that tends to, you know, impact your appetite too. So I, I guess I just lost the, I wasn't really on a crash diet or, or doing any particular kind of exercise or anything. I just ate a lot less. And I had, I had gotten kind of chunky, and uh, uh, I was happy to lose the weight. Do you ever get, and now this maybe is part of being a very famous, uh, wealthy musician, and maybe it's just certain people, but I happen to suffer from this. Do you ever sit there and scream at the injustice of the world that you should not have any difficulties, you shouldn't have back pain, you shouldn't have, um, uh, you know, we shouldn't have to get older, are you fighting all of this stuff or are you are you accepting of all like you say life there was a bunch of life things going on that were difficult. Do you get angry at these difficulties or do you just accept them? You deal with them. Uh there's no point in getting angry and getting frustrated because hey, you think you got life all sussed out and boom, something comes along and knocks you for a loop. And that's what happens with life. You, you, you can't ever just rest on your laurels and say, okay, everything's going to be smooth from now on. It just doesn't go like that. Uh, sort of like we didn't start the fire. I know a lot of people don't like that song, but the whole point of that was not an apology for the baby boomers. It was the world's a mess. It's a mess now. It's always been a mess, and it's always going to be a mess. Get used to it. Uh, so I, I'm happy to be alive. I mean, I'm happy to still be around. I've lost a few friends already and I'm grateful to still have my life. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I, I think about that all the time. Aging is really kind of freaky. And I go, well, how much longer do I have? How much longer am I going to be here? And it flips me out, man. It just does. Yeah. You have to try to not to dwell too much on that because it can start to get morbid, but you become more aware of your own mortality. It becomes more palpable as you approach the end. You, you get sort of, you know, uh, a dialogue with it. Uh, how am I going to deal with that? Uh, what's that going to be like? Yeah, da, da, how, do, how do you leave? Uh, but to dwell on it too much isn't good. I think there's this... There's some kind of a little uh, automatic, you can't think about that too much system in, in the brain to prevent you from getting too deep. Billy, what do you make of when you read, I was thinking about you when I read this, uh, of like Bob Dylan selling his catalog for like hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you read about some of these guys as they get older. Just telling, I, I look at your catalog. I'm talking about, I mean, we're going to celebrate your catalog. We're going to play a couple of tunes I want to ask you about. But when you sit and listen to all of the songs you wrote, I got, have you ever had an appraisal done on what your catalog would be worth if you sold it tomorrow? I've never had an appraisal done. There have been offers for me to sell it, uh, which I haven't accepted. Um, why? Why won't you accept it? Like, why, why not now at this point in your life say, you know what? Why not cash in? I, I mean... I might as well see the money now. Uh, well, look, for enough money, I guess everything's for sale. What's that in The Godfather? After all, we're not communists. Uh, <laughs> right. That's right. But, but uh, right now, I still have control of how the songs are used. I have a, a say over how they're licensed. Uh, if they want to be used for a, a, 
a commercial for, I don't know, underarm spray or toilet paper, I could say no. But sometimes I say yes because I, I'm, I, I'm a fan of broadcast. Sometimes the, the, an advertisement will get to more people than regular radio play will. Um, so I, I'm the one who picks and chooses how it gets used. Uh, and if I sell my catalog, I give that power up. I give that control up. And they're my children. I think of my songs as my kids. I went through a pregnancy and a labor with these songs. I remember how hard I worked on them. And I don't necessarily want to give that permission away for how my kids are, are, are utilized. Right. Um, but I think for, you know, like a Howard Stern serious signing deal, I might go for your numbers. Maybe you could <laughs> negotiate the deal, Howard. No, I mean, come on. The numbers would be astronomical. We're, I think we're talking billion, a billion something dollars. I mean, at least at, at no, the I don't minimum. Think it's worth that much. Really? I don't know who would pay that. Yeah. I, I, no, I, I, mean, I, I, I don't think so. But if somebody came in with a billion dollars, what am I going to say? No, I'm from well, Levittown. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is it Hicksville or Levittown you're from? I'm never really it's, sure. It's the Levittown part of Hicksville. I'm oh. from Hicksville. <laughs> That's where I went to school. That was my, my home. Uh, area, but there used to be a Levittown mailing address. So I was the Levittown part of Hicksville. Now, which is not far from Roosevelt, where you went right. to school. Yeah, no, yeah, we do. Great communities. Uh, you know, uh, it's a miracle that, that we got out of them. It really, you know, when you look back on your life and you realize you're a guy from Hicksville who just now fills Madison Square Garden whenever he wants to, uh, it is, it is quite remarkable. What are the odds of that happening to anyone? And, and you know, when I read zero, zero odds, <laughs> you, you have a better chance of being on the New York Yankees than, than yeah. doing what you accomplished. You know, it, it's yeah. really, it's really crazy. And you yeah, know, there's one, one other guy I know from Hicksville who was, uh, Westbury, I think it was Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Same era and same age. Yeah. Right. That's it. I, well, Dr. J came from Roosevelt and I think he was so embarrassed okay. being from Roosevelt. He used to tell people he was from Freeport because he considered that a better address. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And Sandra D came from Roosevelt too, I think. Really? Uh, you know, yeah. Well, Eddie Murphy. That. Yeah. Eddie Murphy and Flavor Flav too. So, I mean, uh, we've got quite a an alumni. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's great. a Massapequa group too. too. Oh yeah. Billy Crystal, well, uh, I think the Baldwins, um, uh, Paul Reiser. There's, yeah. a, there's a whole Ma Ma Massapequa Mafia, too. It's got to be a surreal moment, you know, and, and one of the reasons Billy's here is uh, it, not that you need the promotion, really. Billy's going back to Madison Square Garden. He's uh, going to do the, the concerts are amazing. And by the way, we talked about this earlier. When I go to your concerts, and I've seen you in concert at least five, six times, when there are people behind me in the crowd singing along, I want to fucking kill them. I am there to see Billy Joel and hear that voice and, 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 and take it in. Please tell your fans right now there is to be no singing along <laughs> with you. Because you I, I, these tone-deaf assholes who are sitting behind me at your shows, who are singing every word, word to Piano Man or anything from The Stranger, and you go, okay, you know the words. Congratulations. Do you agree with me, Billy, as someone who has attended many concerts as well? Shouldn't people quiet down during these concerts? I actually like when they sing along. I like hearing the audience oh, sing along. Oh, don't say that. Please, No, Billy. I'm sorry, Howard. I, I, <laughs> I get a kick out of it. It's like this community. Uh, it's like we're creating this, this community in, in the garden or even in these stadiums that we play at. When the crowd sings along, there's a great joy that I get from that. Um, I'm creating a, like a corral. And uh, sometimes when I'm not, you know, when I'm singing and I'm worried I'm, I'm going to forget the words, I'll actually watch people singing in the audience to read their lips. <laughs> like when I'm doing, we didn't start the fire, Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China Jen. And I'm looking at the people in the front. They're trying to prove to me they know the words. And then I try to read their lips. Oh, okay. They know the words. I'll follow that guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't even tell me that. Is that really true? I mean, that's, that's crazy. But then you once know, in a while, there's somebody who doesn't have a clue what the words are, and they just go, habba dabba dabba da, read it, that's start me. the fire. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot. I know that part. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. You know, so, so you know, in, in planning today that you were coming, I was thinking about my college days. 
when I was uh, the the album that I first got turned on to with Billy Joel was uh, Street Life Serenade. And, uh, you know, I know every song on that album. And I'm watching some concert or you're doing something online. This is years ago. And you're talking about the song Roberta. And I love the song Roberta that you wrote. Roberta. Da, 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 da. I think it's one of the most beautiful songs. And I don't know how many people know it. You know, I, I, you know who knows what the Billy Joel catalog is so vast. That's pretty obscure, then, that one. Is it? See, that's one of my favorite songs that you do. And and uh, all of a sudden you say to the audience, by the way, this song is about a hooker who I fell in love with. And I went, what the fuck is Billy talking about? A hooker <laughs> that he fell in love with? That's Roberta? Here, wait, I'll, let me play a little of this song, get you in the mood. Because oh, we got to talk about this. Gorgeous song. Roberta, you say you know me But I see only what your pain to show me I wish you had the time Ah, what a song I wish you had the time And then when you said it was about a hooker, I said, oh, of course it is. Now it makes sense. <laughs> paid what you sh you're only paid for what to show me so what what the fuck are we talking about here billy you were in this is when you were in la it was that period in your life where uh cold spring harbor had come out the album didn't do what you wanted it to do you go off to la you're fighting with your record company the whole thing and it's dreary and you're playing in that piano bar and it's filled with derelicts things are looking bleak so what how do you meet roberta well, this came after the Piano Man album. Street oh, Life okay. Serenade was actually right. the third album I, I released after right. Cold Spring Harbor and Piano Man. So right. I was living in L.A. And uh, I met this woman um, who, it turns out, she was a call girl. Did you and know that? I like, didn't did know you that. pay her? No, no. You I, were dating I, her? No, I just met her. I just knew oh. her. I think uh, just just somebody I, I I met and I knew and I thought uh, you know I kind of got a crush on her. She was beautiful. I couldn't believe that that was her job. I just I couldn't get over it. Uh, <laughs> she could be she could have been a model. She could have been an actress, but she was a call girl. <laughs> and um, you know I would like fool around and tease you know uh, about getting getting together and doing something. And she would say, Yeah, okay for. Uh, that's this is what I get for that, and I, mm. I was, wow. So that's how <laughs> no, it works. And nothing she was very is more nonchalant about it. There's a bunch of different things going on in that song. I don't know if you you heard in the, in the recording you just played. There's this pedal steel guitar in that song, which is very very different from the typical Billy Joel song. That's like a country instrument. Mm. like a Hawaiian kind of guitar thing. Yeah. I love the pedal steel guitar. We use that on a lot of songs, too. I think it's a very sexy instrument. You know, uh, it's real. I've got so many theories and things about you. I was talking to Robin this morning. I said, you know, I'm so excited Billy's coming on. And I think about your life. And, you know, at an early age, well, were you like six when they realized you were such a great musician, like your mom you know, it, it, it's it's mind blowing to me that you were playing classical music and things when you were just a little kid, and you first start piano lessons. When did you first start piano lessons? How old were you? I was four. Four. Yeah. And they and and the teacher sees right away you've got an ability, right? And you weren't like some schlub who uh, you know was having difficulty. You could actually catch on. Well, the teacher never told me she thought I was particularly gifted or anything because i i didn't really practice the way i should have when you start taking piano lessons of course the first thing you learn are the classics right uh, you learn simple uh you know nursery rhyme type of uh, songs and then you start learning haydn and and mozart and clementi and cherny and hannon uh, all the basic stuff. And that's typical of piano lessons, of anybody who's ever taken piano lessons. Um, so nobody told me, oh, you're really gifted, you're really talented when I was very, very young. I just kind of took to it. And mm -hmm. I started learning how to play by ear. 
I, oh, well, I just thought of something. I wanted to pop back. Who else came from my area? Lorraine Baracco. She came oh, okay. Too. Yeah, you can't leave her out. I had a, a little brain bubble that happened. Um, yeah, that was so, nice of you to remember her. Yeah, she was from Hicksville. She had the same chorus teacher, too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, everybody took kind of the same kind of lesson. I took the John Thompson piano course. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Standard. John yeah. Thompson, you remember that? Yeah, and I do. I took one, it. Yeah. Book two, the first song I ever learned was called Off We Go to Music Land, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Off We what? Go to Music Land, learned by eye and ear and hand. Terrible. You know, I, I, you, you got through book one. I, I never did. I was so bad. I told you my piano teacher committed suicide and, and, uh, my, my parents would hide when he would come because they were upset that he, he said, please make him stop, take lessons. That's what they, they would beg him. You know, we had the opposite experience that you had, but here's my thing with you. And now I'm going to play psychiatrist because I'm hung up on this. Your father was a great piano player. He's a pianist and your mother love to sing so there's music in the family mm -hmm. but the the tragedy that i see in your life is and and you don't play this up at all but the tragedy that i see in your life is that your father left to go to europe he left your mother left you when you were eight years old mm -hmm. and my my true feeling is that when your father's absent and you ache for him you got to find a way to connect so of course the way for you to have a father was to play the piano because you knew that he loved piano. So at least you could understand his love of the piano. So, so you almost had to be great at the piano because that was your father. That is a very shrink thing to say. Um, well, what do you think yeah, of that? I think in a way I had to become my own father because right. I had no idea what a father was supposed to be. And I, this is interesting. I just saw a program the other day. Springsteen and Barack Obama were talking about the same subject. Both of them, their fathers weren't around. Their right. fathers were an absence in their lives. So they had to compensate for that in some way. Barack Obama became president of the United States. Springsteen, Springsteen became the, one of the biggest rock stars in history. I think I had to do the same thing. I had to compensate for not having a dad. Uh, but in a way, it also gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, I didn't have the fear factors a lot of guys had because their father was around. I never got, you know, punished by my father. Like, there was one time my old man hit me. I was playing. So he was upstairs. He had come back from a business trip. He was hardly ever around. But he was upstairs, I think, sleeping or taking a nap. And I started to play the Moonlight Sonata. Which goes da 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 da, and I started to rock it up da 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 da, and he came down the stairs like in one step and whacked me, and knocked me out. I was literally knocked out, and then when I came to, I thought, well, he heard me, you know. I was like a way to get attention from him was to play rock and roll because he hated rock and roll. Did he ever explain to you? Did he say, he said, I hate rock and roll and um, and he whacks you in the head to the point that he knocks you out. I mean, jeez. Well, he didn't have to explain it to me. I got it with the knockout, you know. Right, right. Uh, and he uh, he was not a happy guy. He, he had a very, very hard life, my old man. He was from Germany. The family were Jews. His family had to, him and his parents had to flee. They lost all their money. They had a big business. They were, he was broke. Uh, mm -hmm. When they came, he couldn't even come to the States. He had to go to Cuba for a couple of years. Then he comes to New York. Finally, they get to America. He gets drafted into the Army and gets sent to Germany to shoot people from his own hometown. Uh, so it kind of messed him up. I mean, yeah. my father wow. had, a, had a very difficult life. And and when he leaves, uh, again, you know, you're eight years old and your mom's spending. Your mom never remarried, right? She was no. a single mother. She didn't have yes. any financial help. She had to raise you herself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and there was very little contact with your old man. And so, none. none. Unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable. By the way, there's two things I learned about you. One, your father's first name was Howard. Right. And, and the first piano you ever had that you loved 
and that you would you would you love the piano so much you would sleep under it. You wanted to be near it. <laughs> this was it's a it almost brings me to tears. The piano's name was Howard, right? The first piano I ever bought was uh, made by the Baldwin Company, and it, the, it was an anglicized name. Uh, it was like a Kauai subsidiary, and it was called a Howard Piano, which mm. is my father's name. Actually, right. his real name in German is Helmut. He was Helmut <laughs> Joel, but right. um, his uh, anglicized name was Howard. And the first piano, I, grand piano I bought was when I was about... 1920. I lived in a little apartment in Oyster Bay and I got this piano. I slept under it. I was so thrilled to have a grand piano in my house. Well, think about that. I mean, the piano became your father in a sense, or, or, or your connection to a father was sleeping next to that piano. It probably represented something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad image. Does that make you sad? Does it make me sad? Sometimes uh, I never was felt any hostility. I mean, when he left, I was eight, and I never saw him until I was in my mid-20s again. Never heard from him, never got a call or a postcard or anything. But I, I missed having a father, but I didn't feel any hostility. I'm, I, I suppose there is some anger in, in there. Uh, I mean, I'm sure a shrink could get that out of me. Yeah. But um, I don't ever remember feeling hostility about it. It was that was how his life went. Uh, I, I have a, a particular empathy for him because his life was so difficult, as well as I do for my mother. Her life was difficult, too. Here's what makes me sad. Imagine the love affair he could have had with you, with your extreme talent. I mean, it's an amazing gift in talent. I, I even hate using the word gift because you worked at it, too. And it's a. Uh, it's but but imagine the bond between these two musicians, father and son, enjoying one another, enjoying it, the, it, the playing of the piano. Yeah, that could have been a pleasant experience. Now, I have a half brother uh, who is over 20 years younger than me, who is an opera conductor. He lives in Vienna hmm. uh, and he's great conductor. Uh, he hasn't played uh, conducted in the States yet, but he's very talented and. My father got to bond with him because they, you know, he, he stayed with him in, in Austria. Uh, and that, and I saw that relationship happen. And I was very happy for my brother to have that relationship with my dad, which I didn't have. And I, but I happen to be very close with my brother too, even though he lives in Vienna. Really? So you, you, yeah, you don't resent him? I, my, no, I love my brother. He's, I love this guy. He's like a younger version of me. Who I, you know, can kind of, you know, go back to my youth and go, you know what? You don't want to do this. You want to watch out for this. So I'm the big brother here. I, I love it. And you never went through that kind of like, well, why did my father love this guy? You know, and why did he spend his life with this guy? And, and what was wrong with me that he wouldn't be with me? Uh, you, you can ask why forever. You know, you're never going right. to get the answers. You know, uh, the, 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 I feel like the Billy Joel story could be made into a movie. And uh, I'll tell you why. And this is the part I love. And I don't know that you talk about it a lot. But when you start playing piano and you start to get noticed and rock and roll starts to happen and things like that, the, the, Virginia, uh, this girl you knew in school, what was it? Fourth grade you met Virginia? Who was this cute girl in your school? Uh, maybe had around third or fourth yeah. grade, yeah. What was the moment like when Virginia who uh, you have a bit of a crush on at that point, you know, as, as we do when we're young. Virginia never noticed you. Virginia didn't pay much attention to you. You sit down at the piano, and what did you play, Hound Dog or something? I don't know what the hell you played. All of a sudden, her okay. eyes, yeah, her eyes light up. Right, Billy? That's well, it. It was when I was in a band, because mm -hmm. I, I played piano before I was in a band, and this girl was in my primary school, uh, and then, but I didn't realize I liked girls until later on, maybe fifth grade, sixth grade. And by that time, Virginia when I started going to a private school. She was no longer in the same school. And that's when I realized, hey, I missed this girl. And I played at a church and she had been going to Catholic school, I think. And she was in the audience when I was in this band and I saw her again.
And I said, oh, there's Virginia. And she was this cute girl, freckles, the whole Irish thing. And I had a crush on her, you know, that was in a different way than I, when I was a little boy. I was now an adolescent. Right. And I said, hey, there's Virginia. She's checking me out. Uh, isn't she cute? She, I don't think she ever knew I had a crush on her. Uh, I, I was never, you know, bold enough to come out and say, hey, I have a crush on you. I like you. Let's, let's go on a date or something. Never did verbalize that. When you started to get really famous, did Virginia ever show up at one of your shows? I was talking to Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters about this. He had an experience just like yours. And then years later, she shows up. They're playing some stadium, the Foo Fighters, or when he was in Nirvana. And this girl shows, she's like Virginia to him. She shows up, and now he, he's got her backstage. He's, you know, walking around like the king of the hill. And he sees her in the audience and, you know, he, he had this fantasy that one day she would see him in a stadium. He had, you know, and then it came true. There she was. Of course, she flipped him the bird and told him to fuck off. But, you know, <laughs> it was which is a great story. But but, uh, you know, th 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 that's the moment, right, that you live for. Wouldn't you love to see even today? Wouldn't you love to see Virginia in the audience mouthing every word to your songs? She actually came to a show. um, Long after uh, I started playing, you know, the big places and um, <clears throat> she already had a family. She was married. I was married. So we just met as old friends. Right. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think if there was any any of the girls that I had crushes on that showed up. First girl I ever kissed was named Joanne Lips. Believe it or not. <laughs> Joanne Lips. Joanne Lips. I didn't kiss her. She kissed me. Wow. We were sitting in, in the junior high auditorium, and this girl comes over and gives me a big, wet kiss for a couple of minutes. And I was really? in shock. So that's what kissing a girl is like. But she was the initiator of this. Uh, that was it. Where yeah, is I'll Joanne go. Lips? Has she ever come to a show? You know, why did she give you a kiss? Was it because she had seen you play? Like, in other words, was she just, you were just Billy Joel, uh, a kid back then. Was it? Was there something going on? Were you a star in your school? In other words, when you walk through the halls and people go, that's the kid who plays the piano like a pro, uh, I would assume that no. you were a, no. I, I was no big deal. I, I think she was just like a momentary thing for her that I want to kiss this guy, wow. kiss this boy, and she did. Um, the girl that I had really had a crush on was in my English class. Her name was Carol Mullally. And I had this major question, and I think I used to stare at her, and <laughs> and I, but I did never had the nerve to even talk to her. And right. then she was passing notes with another girl, and the other girl showed me the notes. <laughs> I read one of the notes. The creep is still looking at me. <laughs> I, I was the creep. I was heartbroken. I said, oh, oh my God, she thinks I'm a creep. Oh, God. But, you know, all that staring and longing, and it, I guess it creeped her out. So I never saw her again. Oh, so, uh, sorry, Carol. Her, <laughs> I, I have to apologize to Ruthland Kilroy. Wherever Ruthland Kilroy is, I, I broke her heart. I, 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 I was not a good guy to her. This was when I was like 18 or 19 and some, she is somewhere. I hope first girlfriend, I, I apologize. Huh? What? First well, girlfriend. One of my earliest girlfriends. Yeah. Um, I think I, I started going out with somebody else or I, I did something to break her heart and I hurt her and I still feel bad about it. So this is my nationwide apology, wherever you are. That's a wonderful apology. I have people, I have to, like, I know what you're talking about when you're a young man, especially if you just don't know what you're doing. It, it's like, um, the way you break up is you stop calling or you go, uh, you know, like, like you don't even think you avoid. to be, uh, yeah, you're not even going to mention that, but you don't go, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not feeling the same way anymore. Uh, you know, you, you don't give anyone an explanation. You just go on and just figure nobody cares anyway. And, and, and there's so many breakups like that when you're young and you feel like it's yeah. just a tool when you think back on your life. It's a thoughtless time of life. Uh, there's so many things that are going on in your head when you, by the time you're 21, you're, real, you're you, a mess. Do you ever go on Facebook and look up some of the people that either you had a crush on or who ignored you in high school or, or that you knew early on and now you just want to see how bad they look? I mean, I do this as a regular thing. 
Well, I know there's this thing, what is it, classmates or something? You're supposed to be able to track people down. I don't even know how to do this. I'm so inept at right. uh, my laptop. I, all I know how to do is get email. I don't even, what do you call it? Uh, what's this called? Uh, texting? texting? I, don't, I don't text. I you don't think text. a piano player, I have nimble fingers, but I don't text. There was one girl I tried to get a hold of uh, from my uh, junior high day, Glenna Traurits. Beautiful girl. Uh, we broke up. I don't know why. I even wrote a song about her called Glenna Glide. And I tried to get in contact with her, but that was it. I never heard back from her. She probably thought I was a, like a, a stalker or something. So I never heard back. Those no, I, girls, I, I don't. But those girls stay in your head. And I know when I got famous and I came back to New York and I was like now with like a guy on the radio and I was well known. I want, I thought I'd be contacted by every girl I ever knew. Who, of course, rejected me. And I thought, well, and I figured when you become Billy Joel, this huge, humongous rock, one of the biggest rock stars in the world, I just figured they all come out of the woodwork and say, oh, I was such a shithead. I should have, I should have, you know, I had, I, Billy, I should have been with you. I really fucked up. But you never get that moment. You never get anybody doing that. I did have a moment like that. I went to my 20th high school reunion, 20th year high school reunion. And I had just come back from the Soviet Union. And so there was a lot of press about me and all this stuff. And there were these two, uh, two girls. They were twins. They were cute girls. And they came right over to me. Each one took an arm and they were hugging me and they were saying, Ooh, I never met a millionaire before. And I thought, Hey, this is, <laughs> this is kind of cool, you know, because they right. wouldn't look twice at me in school. Right. And, um, uh, th that was that moment. And, and then I, uh, uh, you know, after I, after that reunion, I thought, well, it wasn't as thrilling as I thought it was going to be. Right. Yeah. The fantasy is so much better. It's so true. Yeah. Sometimes the want is better than the have. You knew when you were in high school, I I'm not going to college. I have no interest in college, but here's the thing that I learned about you that is so fascinating to me. It never occurred as talented as you were, and you were always playing in bands you were always making money uh, on the side, playing here and there, you know, maybe making a couple of bucks. But some high school teacher comes up to you, music teacher, I assume, and says, hey, Billy, you're really good. You could make a living being a musician. And you went like an epiphany. What? Oh, you mean yeah. I could really be for like I could find my place in the world being a musician. You had no concept that a musician, you know, it wasn't like nowadays. You saw the Beatles, the Stones, you see these guys, they're all making money as musicians. We didn't have that. You, all of a sudden, this guy says it to you and you say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and make money as a musician. True. This was back in the day. This was like in the mid 60s, uh, around the time the Beatles were becoming huge, but still it was being a musician was looked at as like a gypsy life. Uh, right. It was a one in a billion shot for anybody to become successful. So this, who was my chorus teacher and my music history teacher, his name is Chuck Arnold. He now lives in Colorado. Uh, he also taught Lorraine Baracco. He, he, wow. Uh, also, and uh, uh, Adina Menzel, the singer. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, who did our, our town hall thing, I think. How great was, by the yeah. way, but we got to stay on this topic, but. That town hall, I've got pictures from it. I, I, I loved that experience. That has my, my, one of my favorite broadcasting moments. We, we went over to the cutting room. If case you never heard this, you should check it out. We have it up on the app. I'm sure Billy sat there. What were we, we sit for about three hours bullshitting, but different people came by and performed your music. What a magic for me. That was yeah. one of the best. And watching you, watching them perform your songs, no greater joy. And I, I can't imagine what that's like when you see other people performing your songs. It's got, it's got to just be just so great. And that was a really fun show. I, I still remember that. Um, I really do enjoy watching other people do my material because it's like my kids left home and went on to become successful on their own. Now they're independent. They're being sung by other people. It's become part of the fabric of life. Uh, that's, that's a real satisfying feeling. Um, by the way. Speaking of that, I was th I was listening to the Billy Joel channel on Sirius XM, 
And uh, every once in a while, I like when you do this, you'll play some of your favorite songs, not your songs. You'll play, you know, influences like a Cream song or a Jimi Hendrix song or the Beatles. I like when you do that. And Tom Morello has recently started doing something on Lithium where he's like a DJ. And he but he really talks about the love of these songs and what he was thinking during those songs. I would love to hear you do that. I could listen endlessly to you going through different influences and why you think these guys are good or bad. I Yeah, I've I've done it with Lou Simon on my own show on the Bridge right. Old Channel. Yeah. Uh a matter of fact, you started this particular show with Cream. Right. Uh, I feel free, bump, 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 bump. Bum. I actually have a song on my last album uh, of, of original songs, uh, uh, The River of Dreams, called Shades of Grey, which I was really channeling cream. Um, you know that song? Yeah. Money, nothing funny, wasting the way. It was, it's called Shades of Grey. Because I loved Cream. I love Cream. I know a lot of people might have difficulty. How did he get from Cream to what he does on the piano? Uh, a lot of times I wished I was a real guitar player. I, I can play right. everything guitar. But I loved Cream. I loved Hendrix. I loved Zeppelin. I loved guitar bands. Um, here's, one of, and, here's one of your favorites that you love of Cream. White Room. Right? Great song. Great song. And you do that as a songwriter. You'll listen to somebody and you'll credit them. You'll say, hey, I was listening to that song and I decided I'm going to try and write a song that sounds like White Room or or has some kind of vibe to it. Yeah. I mean, I'm a product of my influences. Nobody grows up in a test tube. I guess the problem with... There it is. I guess part of the problem playing the piano is you can't really do a metal song, you know? But you were in a metal band, weren't you? When, like, uh, you had Attila, you had Attila. the Hassles. Attila was a metal band that you were in. We were trying to be a metal band. Uh, it was Hammond organ and drums. The Hammond organ was wired through these gigantic plush amplifiers. So it was all distorted. And I had a wah-wah pedal and a fuzz box. But it was just a lot of noise. Um so wait, 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 here's the, you, you, we went away from where you asked me about the music teacher. Yeah, this music teacher says to you, you can be a musician. And it never occurred to you before that you could I, be I one. didn't really think about how was I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to do something with music. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to do it with a band or on my own or as a writer or as an arranger, or as a producer, something, music. And this chorus teacher chuck arnold said you're good enough to be a professional musician right you could probably be a, a musician uh when you're out of school and i said wait a minute wait a minute you mean i could make a living I, 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 that could be my job and, and for a grown-up to say that to me when i was about 15 was was an epiphany that was like you know paul on the road to tarsus boom wait, wait a minute i could that could be my career. That could be my job. And it opened up the entire world for me. And I, I credited this music teacher, teacher with that epiphany. Explain something to me. At 15, 15 years old, you get your first recording contract. You actually signed a contract with a, with a recording company. Is that correct? Yeah, that was with Mercury Records. Unbelievable. In the Lost what? Souls, yeah. Yeah, wait a second. Wait, so you're in high school, right? You're 15, and you sign a recording contract with the Lost Souls. I mean, how are you not the most popular guy in high school? If I knew some kid in high school who had a recording contract, I don't understand how you weren't the bell of the ball starting back then. Well, because our recordings weren't hit records. They were pretty bad. Um we weren't really the best band in the world. We were just another garage band playing at school dances. In those days, in the 60s, after the Beatles came out, they were signing everybody. They <laughs> Come on, sign, <laughs> They didn't sign me. Sign I know that. the janitor if he could sing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, he's got long hair. He could sing. Great. Sign him. Sign him up. We'll get him. 
But but what, uh, what was that like? You go home to your mother and you go, Mom, you're not going to believe this. I just signed a recording contract. My mom <laughs> said, you ain't signing any contract till I have a lawyer look at it. And, oh. Mom, I want to sign the contract. Don't talk about lawyers. And it's probably not even a legal contract because I was 15. My signature right. wasn't legal. <laughs> I just can't imagine what that's like. You said those early years were wild. Like you, you realize now that 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 uh, you were playing parties for like the Gambino family. Like you take a gig wherever you could get one. You'd play at a church for fifteen dollars. You'd play here. You'd play there, and you would do private parties. And yes. you said it's like the Gambino, like literally the Gambino family. And you guys were such assholes. You would sit there and try to make out with all their daughters. Yes. And, and, you, and they would have killed you. I mean, who knows what you were doing? We had no idea who these people were. They, they kept asking us to play at their parties. They lived in Queens. <laughs> and uh, they had a really nice house in Queens in, in, in a typical Queens development. And in the house, it looked like everything came off the back of a truck. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was what we call ungapach. Everything right. was very ungapach, a lot of gold and a lot of, you know, brass and a, a lot of <laughs> weird fixtures. So we'd play at these people's. We didn't know. These were like the good fellas. These are the people who hit, who did the Lufthansa heist. And they'd always, they'd pay us with like a big pile of money. It wasn't a check. It was here. Here's some money. And they just right. threw money at us. And we'd be, you know, taking a break and we'd be trying to make out with these girls who were the daughters of Goodfellas. Wow. We could have been killed. We had no idea. <laughs> Imagine if that were. had been your life. Oh, my God. It's well, all we so know funny. is they loved to have us, and they gave us a lot of money. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, you yeah. know, uh, uh, what an unbelievable... Uh, it really is an unbelievable life you've had. I mean, what music has, like, sort of exposed you to and the experiences you had. But you never, you never said to yourself, I'm going off to college... Uh, you just kind of saw it. Did you graduate high school even? I don't even think you bothered with that. I didn't graduate high school. No uh, I got a diploma in 92, but I was supposed to graduate with the class of 67, which I, I didn't have enough credits. <clears throat> I just didn't show up for a couple of the classes. I was working at night in the band. You know, bars stay open in New York till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And that's how long I worked. Who could wake up at 7? I couldn't get up. So I would miss the first couple of classes. And by the last year of high school, I was already tuned out of school. I wasn't, I wasn't worried about going to college. Which is funny because I know you now uh, somewhat. Uh, but, uh, you are a guy who loves to read books. You love the history channel. You, you know, you're, you're addicted to learning and I bet you have regrets, right? You probably look back and say, yeah, you know, I should have probably paid attention back then. It would have been satisfying. Well, the regret I have is that I didn't study my instrument well enough. Uh, my, all my piano teachers used to yell at me, your, your mother's wasting her money. You haven't practiced. You're never going to be any good. Uh, it's a waste really? of your mom's money. Oh yeah. They would ream me out, huh. uh, for not practicing and not learning the pieces. I didn't want to read the dots after a certain age. I got to be 16. I said, I don't want to read anybody else's dots. I want to write my own dots. Right. So I didn't, didn't really put my nose to the grindstone and I wish I had because it would have been another tool in the toolbox to help me to create music. The more tools you have, the better you can do it. Um, I mean, I stopped writing songs because I couldn't be better than I, as good as I wanted to be. It became hmm. too aggravating, became too frustrating, so I stopped. Yeah, I never, you know, we've talked about Elton John before saying, you know, hey, you, Billy, you should write more uh, songs. And you go, hey, Elton, you should stop writing so many songs. You know, I've heard that story before, but... You know, I, I do sometimes get frustrated thinking, like, why doesn't Billy just write some songs? But you, it, it, you, say, you say it's just it. It's, it just left you. It just, it's something you didn't want to do anymore. And, uh, it, you know. You have to want to. You have to have the desire to write songs. I love music, so I never stopped writing music. Right. Uh, it's instrumental music. But I stopped writing lyrics because... I got tired of that particular format. Uh, to me, music is enough now. Uh, mm. I became more comfortable with abstract form. Uh, so hearing music d does it for me. It satisfies me. But if, if I have an idea for a song, I'm not going to stop myself. I just haven't had the desire to do it.
Yeah, the songwriting process, whenever I talk to someone of, of your level of accomplishment, it just sounds like it's, uh, you know, sometimes like with New York State of Mind, you say you came to you in 20 minutes, it was like a gift. Like, boom, you're sitting on a bus in 20 minutes. There it is. New York State of Mind. Beautiful fucking song. Uh, and you go, oh, my God, where did that come from? But it sounds like most of the time it is a it is a aggravating puzzle that you constantly have to figure out. Even you've done it before and you've written hit songs. I got to go back and it's like starting all over again. And that's can, the frustration. Yeah, it can be a grind. Uh, sometimes I look at the piano and it's this big black beast with 88 <laughs> teeth that wants to bite my fingers off. Oh, I sit there God. and I go and I try and I please help me something. And you get and you come up with nothing. It's the most frustrating feeling in the world because you want to be productive you want to create something and it doesn't always come to you like a bolt out of the blue it's you don't always get that promethean moment like i did with new york state of mind um and it, it, the, the the worst thing about songwriting is the struggle i love having written i hate writing so you're sitting on a bus and, you know, you hear the complete song in your head, the w lyrics and the music in your head. And you run home and, like, I guess, you know, write it down or record something, right? That's how it works. I can't imagine what that's like. Is it like listening to the radio and hearing a song and then you go, oh, is that somebody else's song or is that my song? Or what? I mean, how does that work? You're sitting there... At, Sometimes I can hear radio shows in my head. It's the weirdest thing. I yeah. actually hear me doing a radio show. Is that what it, what it sounds like to you in your head? It all comes to you internally. It's not something you need to hear externally through your ears. It's from the inside out. Uh, think about it. Beethoven was deaf. Right. How could he possibly have written those symphonies when he was deaf? These incredibly gorgeous symphonies. It had to come from inside his head. So it's the same situation with composing music a lot of times. You got it inside your head, you hear it before you've externally heard it, and then you flesh it out, you know, by playing it on something. But Beethoven can, never could second guess himself. I mean, I can hear on this song that you're doing your Ray Charles sort of impersonation. You're giving it that kind of Ray Charles vibe. I hear it. And I, I've even seen you perform it where you put on the shades and you know you're almost uh dare i say pretending to be blind in a weird way i don't know if I'm that's feeling the like that yeah and and uh it's it's really remarkable that you can channel in like that and say hey i'm going to do my ray charles thing here and and you heard this song on a bus it's just it's mind blowing to those of us who are not musicians i yeah i i always think of other people doing my songs I, early, early on in my recording career, 